You know, your Bibles again to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Continuing in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I hope you are enjoying it as much as I am. I enjoy the progress moving through a book of the Bible like this. When you think about it, uh, traditions are interesting things. Traditions are outward signs, symbols, beliefs, and practices that connect a culture with its past and passes down elements of culture from one generation to another. And they take various forms, of course. For instance, you have traditional symbols, such as statues or memorial structures that commemorate historic events that were formative in the history of a people. A statue, a memorial, is a type of tradition. We think of statues of people such as George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. Perhaps we bring to mind other symbols of national significance, such as the Liberty Bell or the Vietnam Memorial. Another significant traditional symbol is a flag. We think of the American flag and how it is a symbol of the nation and what it stands for, and think of all the traditions surrounding that symbol. Standing. Men removing their head coverings. Right hand over your heart. Recitation of a pledge to singing of an anthem. And seeing its stars and stripes, all of these are traditional elements in a culture that speak to something, that stand for something, that mean something. Make no mistake, those who are tearing down statues, rubbing out books, and canceling speech are seeking to destroy the traditions of a culture that they hate and hope to remake in their own image. Traditions mean something, stand for something, and say something. And when people don't like those traditions, well, they are looking to take them down and change them. So signs and symbols are a kind of tradition that is visible in a community in order to convey a culture's values as it links itself to the past and communicates it to the next generation. Other traditions established in cultures are seen in its confessions. This is what we believe and establish as a group of people. The United States, for instance, established a national culture on the basis of its writings. The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and our founders' writings established national values upon which the whole society would be formed and to which people agreed and pledged their allegiance to. One of the main reasons for reading and considering creeds and confessions of the Christian faith is that we want to intentionally connect ourselves to, to a Christian culture. The history of our faith as those who follow in a long family line. Your family has traditions. You want to build family traditions. You want to pass those traditions on to your children and you want there to be a lasting effect and value that is passed on from generation to generation. We want to remember our history. We want to know our past. And what has been won through hard-fought study and courage against enemies of the gospel and preserved by the providential care of the Holy Spirit. We want to be edified by the orthodox teachings of our forefathers in the church. In the traditions of our historical documents, we find helpful principles and reminders of who we are and from where we have come. 
Just like the founding documents of the United States, they are not inspired by God and they are written by fallen men with imperfections. Our national founding documents do not reflect an inerrant history or perfect union. Yet there is great value in knowing them and being reminded of the values upon which our culture was built. It's the same way with the Christian traditional creeds and confessions in them. We find our history and are connected to the best elements of our past, yet with flaws and incompletions. They are wonderful traditional writing, there are wonderful traditional writings that express our beliefs in a way that is tied to an understanding of Scripture that is good and valuable for us to study and remember. When we find in those things flaws, errors, or shortcomings, we point them out and we hold them up to the Scripture, the only true, inerrant, infallible standard by which all our traditions are measured. Every one of our traditions, every one of our statements, beliefs, and songs, and everything we do is to be measured by the standard of Scripture. Yet let us remember and realize that traditions, listen, they're part of every single human culture. And are, and traditions are necessary and unavoidable elements of every culture. So for instance, those who say, we don't do creeds and confessions, um, our one creed is Christ. Well, that's a creed, right? You, you can't avoid traditions. You can't avoid even confessions and standards of belief. And even churches create even doctrinal statements. Statements that say, this is what we believe about what the scripture teaches. You are establishing a, a creed, a, a confession, a, a standard by which you want to pass on your faith to the next generation and hope that it never dies. But here's another tradition that defines a culture. Perhaps in every national culture and within subcultures, groups of people celebrate traditional holidays. We celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas. And even this week, we'll celebrate Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Now tell me, are any of those holidays prescribed biblically? Answer, no, they are not. Yet Christians have established traditional days and even nations wherein Christians live have chosen to celebrate these days as a way of remembering and pointing to generations after generation after generation something to remember and value what our culture holds dear. We establish the value of setting a day to give thanks to God. We look back to the significance of the birth of our Savior, and we celebrate the wonderful importance of Jesus' death and resurrection on, and the belief in, of His people. Traditions are important and inevitable. Even groups who differentiate themselves by not celebrating traditional holidays have in that establishment of a cultural tradition. The tradition is, we don't celebrate holidays. That's a tradition. And you can kick against the goads, but you can't avoid the tradition. But there are some important things to know about traditions. 
First, traditions are not authoritative in themselves. We must admit that a tradition is not authoritative unless it is biblically prescribed. Yet even in biblically prescribed traditions, we make traditions within the larger tradition that complement it or even possibly detract from it. We can do harm to the biblical tradition. But around those biblical prescribed traditions, we establish other traditions. For instance, the Passover was biblically prescribed. Certain elements were definitely to be included in that celebration. But the tradition of the Seder was not. The makeup of the traditional meal was a combination of biblical prescription and Jewish tradition. We looked at this a little bit when we studied the Lord's table, remember? When we studied the Lord's table, what did Jesus do? Jesus took a traditional cup. Not a prescribed cup. A traditional cup. It was the cup of blessing that was part of a non-biblical Jewish tradition that had valuable meaning that Jesus participated in and he ordained its transformation as a new tradition that represented his blood. From there, Christians have established various traditions around the prescribed practice of the Lord's table. And you'll notice that some churches have different traditions about the Lord's table. Yet the, 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 the goal, the nugget around it will be the same because there's a prescription there. But you have traditions, we talked about this as well, you have traditions about the frequency of celebrating. How often do we do this? Well, you could do it once a year. You could do it once a quarter, once a month. You could do it every week. Those are traditional elements that surround the biblically prescribed tradition. It goes down to the issues of the modes of the celebration. Wine, juice, common cup, walk to the cup, pass the cup. The list of traditional variations is seemingly endless, but the point is that traditions as such are not in themselves authoritative, and we must be careful about how we view our traditions. Are they... Prescribed, are they required, or are there elements around them that we have established that have that we have some freedom and there's movement and there's the ability to change, to adjust, to reevaluate? But the reality and the value of traditions is unavoidable and in fact good and valuable for us. Second, if we err. If we think that since traditions are not authoritative, then they don't matter. That's the imbalance of the, of the pendulum swinging, right? You can, you can be so far on one side that tradition is everything. And this is one of the major errors that I think a lot of the evangelical church has reacted against in terms of the Roman Catholic Church. With all of the traditions and the bells and smells, right? All of the things that surround the church, and we can go so far on the other side and think that, well, we should have nothing to do with tradition. In fact, I recall being at a church a number of years ago where it was extremely intentional that we would constantly change everything up front for the purpose of making sure you didn't get comfortable with whatever was happening. 
It was the purposeful, intentional avoidance of tradition, except it was the tradition that we continually, repeatedly change things. Put the pulpit on the, in the corner, put the pulpit in the middle, put the piano on the stage, put the piano on the floor, uh, move, move everything around and change even the format of the church. Why? So you didn't think that there was anything traditional and stable about what was happening on Sunday mornings. But again, that was the tradition. But it was an attitude towards the tradition that was certainly clear. So unfortunately, we think that in this era, we think that we can just trample, discard, or mistakenly think that we should not participate in them at all. Well, it wasn't biblically prescribed, so I'm going to avoid tradition. The truth is, all you are doing is trading one tradition for another. And you need to recognize that not all traditions are created equal. That's part of the issue as well. Some traditions are bad traditions. Some traditions are better traditions. And so just because some traditions are bad doesn't mean any tradition is bad. No, the, the, the thought should be we ought to have the best traditions that we possibly can have. Some traditions don't last because they don't look to anything of great value or significance. So they, they just blow away. They end up being more filled with chaff. Good and lasting traditions point to something great and valuable, which is why things like Christmas and Resurrection Sunday continue to be celebrated by the church. Why do we keep celebrating year after year after year Christmas and Easter, Resurrection Day? It's because they're so incredibly important. Because they, it's what they point to. It's because of what we value. We value the incarnation of the Son of God. We value the resurrection. For without it, we are dead in our sins. And what we're doing here is a joke, Paul says. And we're going to get there. The resurrection matters. And so... The church has decided throughout the ages to, to celebrate repeatedly a tradition of coming together and having a special focus in honor of and in celebration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. A wonderful tradition. One that we should not take for granted and we don't want to lose. Brothers and sisters, it is a concern that much of modern evangelicalism has discarded our historical traditions and replaced them more with cultural symbols found in modern America. And we find ourselves fighting to maintain some form of Christian identity. Who are we? What is the church? What are the traditions that we hold dear? Do we hold anything dear? What are the doctrines for which we will fight and for which we will die? What are the cultural markers that identify Christian values? And so we come to our modern day where the church has followed, dare I say, perhaps even led the culture in the past decades to cast off her traditions and trample them in the dirt and in the face of those who have fought for and loved them. I even asked in part to my own sense of shame and ignorance and lack of caring. 
I asked the question, where is our church calendar? Growing up in Baptist churches, there are so many things that we just take for granted and neglect and don't have value. Where is Christian culture and tradition? So much of it's on life support. Where is the recognition of Ascension Day and Pentecost? Does the church have our own traditions and values or do we value the traditions and the holidays and the culture of America more than the values and traditions and culture of the church? Is there such a thing? Should there be such a thing as Christian tradition and culture? I think many would argue no. Good Friday worship. I'm glad we're doing it. But for a lot of churches, it's a roll of the dice whether or not that's even celebrated. Reformation Day. Ask most churches and you'll, you'll get the response, what's that? Instead, we get national holidays and Super Bowl Sunday. Speaking of that, what about the Lord's Day? Well, we can substitute a Friday night or a Saturday night instead. No big deal. What about the church gathering on Sunday? Well, we can watch online. It's, it's just a tradition. And what's important is my personal relationship with Jesus. What about the prescription of the Lord's table? Well, there's no prescription for how often, so we'll get to it eventually, whenever we get permission to, or we can pretend to take the Lord's table by doing it by ourselves online or at home. And what you find when you don't have or establish solid traditions that point to valuable things you apply the smallest pressure and a church that doesn't understand or value her traditions folds those traditions like a cheap lawn chair. Why do we sing hymns? You can bet your bottom dollar that tradition has a role in the why. We sing traditional hymns because they are important for joining the congregation together in common songs that have lasted a long time because of their doctrine, their beauty, their context, and their value. And again, our connection to our church family of the past. We will fight for the old because our traditions matter and any hymn that does not bode well for our tradition, we cast it out. We don't hit sing hymns for him's sake. We sing the hymns that lead the people of God in right and proper glorious worship. Why? Because traditions are not authoritative. Yet we dare not say that our traditions don't matter. And again, the old adage, what we value lightly, we will give up cheaply. And so I am aware that I am more than one-third of the way through this sermon and we haven't gotten into the text. It hasn't been lost on me. That was all a preachy introduction to the message, but I hope that you can appreciate how it connects to our text and where we will be going. So look at our text this morning. We're going to read the full context from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. 
Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man of, is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Paul started this section by praising the Corinthians for holding firm to the traditions. Traditions were a big deal for Paul. How big a deal? Well, it was such a big deal for Paul that for women to reject the tradition or to rebel against it from the heart, verse 6, you ought to just go all the way and shave it all off. I'd say he took the tradition pretty serious. Why? Not because a veil or a head covering is a thing in itself. It's cloth. It's like food. The thing itself is not what's important. It is what it points to that's important. It's the symbol. It's the substance. Rather, it was because the value, it was the value of what it pointed to. The tradition meant something. The tradition pointed to a long-standing recognition of God's design. And that, that measure of God's design was even understood, perhaps even by accident, by the cultures around them. It was familiar in Roman and Jewish culture for women to have a covering on their head. Even the lost had the picture. Even the lost celebrate Christmas. Right? Even the lost celebrate Easter in some form or fashion. Whether they understand it, whether they get it all, they certainly don't. But that didn't invalidate tradition. We don't stop celebrating Christmas because some people celebrate Santa Claus. We don't stop celebrating Easter because some people do weird bunnies and eggs. That doesn't invalidate the tradition of, of itself or its, or its own value. The tradition sent a visual message to others and to the next generation of a correspondence with the design of headship and submission with men and women. Though equal in humanity, authoritative headship is a good thing to submit to. 
equal in humanity. Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of woman. Paul made that extremely clear, right? And Jesus Christ is equal in humanity with men. Yet he is head, and we are to submit. Women and men are equal in their humanity, yet man is the head of woman. And it is good to understand and value those roles. And we know that submission to authority does not signal inequality, for Paul pointed out that God the Father is the head of Christ, equal in, in deity, unequal in role. Headship and submission is intrinsic in the Godhead and therefore a design of his creation of man and woman. Last time I wanted to emphasize the heart of the matter and inquiring minds want to know, does this tradition that Paul was serious about apply to today? I received a few of those questions. Should women wear a head covering in society and or in the church? And I didn't want last week to just answer it quickly. I wanted you to, to think and to stew and to stir and to consider the heart of the matter. Because if the focus is just on whether or not there's a piece of cloth on your head, you'd be missing the point. Do you care about what the tradition points to? Do you care about your position as one who submits to your husband. Daughters, do you care more about cloth or do you care more about your role as one who submits to the leadership and headship of your father? I wanted us to not simply consider the legalistic approach, but to wrestle with the heart of the argument and the gold standard to which the tradition pointed. And I want you to care about headship and to take seriously how you portray your beliefs publicly. I wanted you to be honest before God with how you approach God's design for women so that whether it is a valid traditional prescription for today or it is not, you consider your own willingness to submit to God's word in applying its teaching. In other words, if it was for today, if that was the, the clear conclusion that we make today, from your heart would you do it? Do you have the posture that you are willing to do whatever God's word asks you to do? As we get into the remainder of the text, I want to give you my interpretive answer to your question. Does this teach that women are obligated to wear head coverings today? My answer is yes and no. That sounds wishy-washy. The answer is yes, if head coverings were a cultural tradition today that signified a woman's femininity and position as under the headship of a man, then yes, then yes. It would be a tradition that women today should keep. Paul is clear that it was a good cultural tradition outside of Christianity that corresponded to Christian values and for the sake of propriety, and not projecting rebelliousness, believers were to keep the tradition. Believers were not to live out in the public, go out into the world, and the ladies throw off their veil, throw off their head covering, and be like, 
I reject all y'all. I'm a Christian. I don't need this head anymore because I am equal with men before the cross of Christ. I would argue that today, believing women ought to maintain traditional signs of femininity and role relationships and beware of merely adapting to cultural elements that seek to demonstrate a rebellion towards God and men. The answer is also no, because to wear a head covering today does not offer any significant sign of what Paul was describing in first century Corinth. Now, some Christian denominations do maintain head coverings for women as their church culture and interpretation of this text. And I would suggest that they have every right to establish such a practice. It is not by nature wrong, wicked, terrible. The hope would be, and I don't know them, and I did not study all of their thoughts and their theology, but the hope would be that it's for the right reasons pointing to the right things. By nature, a head covering, obviously, it does not violate scripture at all. And if it helps them or us or any of you to remember God's design for your love and your love for your role, then praise God for such an attitude and a practice. If you chose to do so, go for it. But I believe what Paul is pointing to is the normal practice of the broader cultural society. There was a general tradition that was valuable for Paul to say, the church knows no other practice. We keep this. And so while we understand a, a significance in our theology of the equality of men and women before Christ, it does not wipe out the distinctions of men and women that were made at creation. Paul is talking about glorifying God by not wearing something that would be an offense or not wearing something. That would be an offense to the culture in expressing an unbiblical attitude of rebellion. Don't express your rebellion in an outward way. That's what's, that's what's primary, what's most important. And you've all seen that, right? You, you, you know, sometimes just by looking at someone... If there's some rebellion that they're dealing with, that they're expressing. It can be in the way they wear their clothes, the way they groom themselves, or don't groom themselves. For the women in Christ to cast off societal norms of decency, of femininity, and respect that pointed instinctively to God's design would have been itself rebellion against God and a stumbling block to others. Paul said in chapter 10, verse 32, give no offense. And remember who he was saying that we're not to offend? Don't offend Jews, Greeks, or anybody in the church. Uh, I think that means everybody. Why? Verse 33 said, because I'm not seeking my own profit. I'm not seeking just to put myself on display and to, and to overthrow the apple cart and just be authentic me. I'm not eating just for myself. I'm eating to glorify God. I'm not dressing just for myself. 
I want to be pleasing to others for the sake of saving others, Paul says. And we talked about that distinction. It is a clear distinction that so much of the church, I believe, has gotten wrong. It's a difference between being a man-pleaser and being pleasing to men. Not causing people to stumble. And I'm not seeking approval from the base, rebellious heart of the lost. I'm seeking not to be dishonorable, disrespectful, and expressing a rebellion. Of course, you're going to find people in the world that will like that. That that you'll be pleasing to. But that's not who Paul is saying you need to be pleasing to. You need not to be a stumbling block in and of yourself by your attitudes and your actions. I'm not wanting to be a cause for stumbling by rebelling against the good and honorable elements of culture. And you have to recognize that we need to tell the difference. There are good and there are bad traditions. There is good and there is bad music. There is good and there is bad dress. And determining the difference on those is important, difficult, but valuable. And Paul is saying this head covering thing, that's actually a pretty good thing. You look around Rome, you look around Israel, you see head coverings all around. We're not here to overthrow that tradition. What's important is to not associate with the feminists and the rebels. Make sure you're not associating with them. I'm not wanting to adorn the gospel with my attitude and my practice of independence and rebellion. Paul is saying in this whole section of scripture that the point is for men to correspond to manliness and that reflects God's design and for women to correspond to femininity that reflects his design. And so in verses 7 through 9, we have the source of the tradition. In verses 10 through 12, we have the reason for the tradition. And in verses 13 through 16, we have the example of the tradition. We have the source, the reason, and the example. In verses 7 through 9, Paul gives the source of the tradition, which is the created design. Look at verse 7. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. The principle of the tradition, which stands above this whole section, is the principle of headship in verse 3. We looked at that two weeks ago. However, the source of the tradition goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says that God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice that God made man in his image. He did not make woman in God's image. We don't really talk of it that way, usually. 
But Paul is making that specific, distinct point. Man was made in God's image. Woman was not made in God's image. He made man in his image, and woman was created in the image of who? Man. Paul says that man is the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Paul is making a distinction about the order and the symbolism in creation. He did so also in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where he based the reason for not permitting a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man was because Adam was created what? First. Adam was created first. Therefore, women don't get to exercise authority or teach men. Now, we believe that women bear the same image of God because of her equality with man. But she was not originally created in God's image. We're not saying that humanity doesn't bear the image of God. For there is the connection of men and women together. And there is the equality and the, and the, the equalness in the humanity and in the creation of man and woman for sure. But Paul is making a clear theological distinction between man being made in the image of God and woman being made in the image of man, for she is his glory. Man was created in God's image and the woman was created in man's image. And the image of God in woman comes from her connection with man. For a man to cover himself, Paul is saying, was to take the awkward sign, excuse me, the outward sign of the secondary position in creation. The head covering signified something above her. For a man to cover his head, he was saying that something was above him, and that is not true. You're not corresponding with creation, dude. Man is the first stop. He is the top, the pinnacle of creation made in God's glorious image. Paul says in verse 9, man was not created because the, because the woman was alone and needed a helper. That's my paraphrase. Man was not created because the woman was alone and needed a helper. Woman was created for the man's sake. She is bone of bone and flesh of flesh. She came out of man and is his glory. And so the traditional symbol corresponded to the source of the principle, and that is the original creation of man and woman. In verses 10 through 12, Paul gives the reason for maintaining tradition as not only corresponding to the source of creation, but for the sake of the angels. Verse 10. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Now, that might seem odd to us, but this is an important reason for Paul. Angels are created beings who are not made in the image of God. They operate in a spiritual realm, but they are creatures nonetheless. Angels who are servants of God are watching over the affairs of the earth and who occasionally get to participate in it, right? 
Angels have taken the form of men. They have appeared and they have spoken to men. For them, we are a wonder. We are an opportunity for the angels, for them to give glory to God. Peter says that preaching of the gospel and its power by the Holy Spirit is something that angels long to look into. They watch and they wonder at God's creation of and work in mankind. We are one of the most interesting things to angels. And they are excited to glorify God for all of his works and all of what he's going to do. And they are ready, they stand ready to do his battle. They're awaiting his word to execute his authority and his judgment for him. They are part of the common confession of the church in 1 Timothy 3.16 as those who are witnesses of Christ. We looked at that recently in our men's small group. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says that the apostles have become spectacles, men condemned to death, both to men and to who? And to angels. The angels were watching the apostles as men who were ministering the gospel, but who were persecuted and condemned to death. And that is a marvel to the angels. The angels were watching the suffering, the persecution of the apostles. And in chapter 3, verse 10 of Ephesians, Paul says that the wisdom of God in the church is manifested before watching rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The wisdom of God in the church is manifested before the watching rulers and authorities in heavenly places. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 21, Paul charges Timothy in the presence of God and who? The angels. We don't actually think and include and recognize that someone's watching us. And they care about what we do. They care about how we worship God and serve Him. They are witnesses to Paul's instruction to Timothy. And the point is that angels are watching, and they're watching witnesses to what's happening on earth. And for the sake of not offending them, Paul urged the men and the women to keep the tradition so that the proper order of creation would be observed among God's people. I think Paul's point is that it is an offense to the holy angels to see a man acting like a woman outside of his God-ordained purpose. You're an offense to the angels. He says, women ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. It is an offense for the angels to see a woman rebel against her role as she was created to fulfill. And the angels know all about submission and rebellion, don't they? Right? The angels know a lot about the whole submission and rebellion principles. The holy angels are those who have maintained their created purpose and love. And they serve the God who made them. They know all about what it means to be a creature who rebels against their maker. Why? Because the fallen angels were just like them in nature. So 
Paul wants us to consider how we express our created design as we are doing. So before the watchful eye of God's angelic servants, we want to maintain that which does not offend and speaks the right message of the order of God's creation, for they are maintaining theirs. We don't think about that very much, do we? Paul puts it in his holy, inspired, inerrant word. And in verse 12, Paul acknowledges that there is indeed a beneficial, symbiotic relationship between men and women, right? Women get their origin from man. It's true. But since Adam, men also get their origin from women. And everything, Paul says, comes from God. And I think, I think he almost brings this up as a reason for rejecting the principle based on the argument of weakness in considering origins, right? Because you could totally see this argument, well, wait, 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 wait. If you're trying to go back to the beginning, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, we know that answer that question, right? When it comes to, to creation. But when you get down to it, from that point going forward, there is an equality, right? You don't get women if you don't have men. You don't get men if you don't have women. It's, there's an equality there. Hey, wait a minute, Paul. There's an equality there. What's with the deal with the head coverings? Paul, I think, is bringing up a truth. It's a, it's a true statement. It's not a false statement. Paul is acknowledging it. Some may argue that there is, an, there is equality of origin and it is not a sufficient basis for the tradition. It may be argued that since there is an equality of dependence upon one another as the source for men and women, that expressing headship outwardly was not spiritually important or offensive. Paul's making the argument. It's, it's actually better for the angels, guys, if you keep this. Some might object, well... There is an equality. We both need each other. And I believe that this is a true objection that Paul is raising, but I think he holds this objection up to be invalid. Again, you logicians out there, you can have a true statement, but an invalid argument. You can have a true statement, but an invalid argument. It's a true, true statement, but Paul sees it as invalid for abandoning the tradition. Not sufficient because there's other things to consider in the argument. In verses 13 to 16, Paul discusses the example of their tradition. So let's read that. He says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Paul says, judge for yourselves. Now, I think this is evidence that this is a Christian tradition and not biblical law. We don't judge God's law for ourselves. We are invited, though, to evaluate the issue. Is it all right for women to pray without their head covered? We need to be careful that our tradition that are all of our traditions address the principle and source of traditions appropriately to make sure that we are glorifying God and not being a stumbling block of offense to others. So for instance, we would not stop celebrating Christmas because some people say Christ is offensive. But we would need to evaluate 
various traditions or the way in which we live publicly out in the world to evaluate, am I being a stumbling block unnecessarily and am I exhibiting an attitude and appropriateness that corresponds with God's design? In verse 14, Paul gives the example of nature to show that the differences between the sexes are manifested outwardly. This is the example for why Paul believes the tradition is valid. He is promoting the value of a head covering on the basis that nature tells you that women have been giving a natural covering already. I don't believe that the hair is the covering that Paul has in mind as the tradition. There is the tradition of wearing a veil or a head covering. Paul is pointing to an example. Hey, you know naturally that there is a difference between men and women. And that difference is clearly seen in that women have been giving a covering that there are men here, for instance, who don't have that same level of covering. Women's hair, as we discussed last week, is a significant sign of what? Femininity. For a woman to have short hair like a boy is a disgrace for uh, is a disgrace by nature, and it is to rebel against nature. And for women to take upon themselves the outward expression of masculinity by their appearance is a disgrace. Long hair for women is a glory for her. Paul says in verse fifteen. For a man to have long hair like a woman is a dishonor for him, in verse 14. And you know this, Paul is saying, naturally. This is, this is you, just you walk outside one day, you know the difference between a man and a woman by looking at them. It's obvious, nature tells you this. That is why when boys start sweeping their hair out of their eyes, we encourage them to get a haircut because your hair is getting long enough for you to whip your hair out of the way like a girl does. There is no length prescription in the Bible. That's where we get off track, right? We get off track with the idea that, well, how long does it have to be? How long can I have it? There's no prescription for how long it is. There ought to be a clear understanding of the difference between a boy and a girl, a male and a female. And there's a difference naturally in our hair. And there ought to be clear distinctions and a love for the way in which God made us. And we ought to beware of taking upon ourselves the characteristics of the opposite sex. Nature tells you that girls have a covering that identifies them as different from boys. And so when the transgender rebels, uh, rebels seek to rebel against the way God made them, what do they do? What do they do? They take upon themselves the physical characteristics of the opposite sex. In their hair. The girls, what do they do? They start looking like a boy and they cut their hair short. I was made aware this week of a vile commercial by a shampoo company. I'm thinking twice about reading their name because I'd be happy for you to boycott them. But I also don't want to cause more trouble anyway. Again, because you can go to the next shampoo company like we talked about before, right? You can boycott one and you, you just turn in one evil thing company for another. 
But the shampoo company produced a commercial where two homosexual women were infatuated with the long hair of a boy in their care who was seeking to become a girl. And in the chief sign that approach, the chief sign of that approach was how long his hair had grown so that he looked like a girl. Buy our shampoo. Nature says that there is honor and that there is dishonor in your hair cover. Don't be naive to think that your clothing, don't be naive to think that traditions don't matter. Verse 16, Paul expresses his concern over the heart of the issue. He says, are you contentious? Does this trouble you? Are you worked up? Are you sitting on the outside and standing on the inside? Is your desire to throw off your covering? Is your desire to not do what pleases your husband or what pleases your father? Is your desire to just have it easier and just do what the opposite sex has? In the first century, if you are a man who acts like a woman and wears a veil or you are a woman who acts like a man and you throw it off, you would be kicking against the traditions of the universal church. And it is indeed a tradition, not authoritative. It is not required to wear a head covering in order to be a Christian. It is not a requirement for the church throughout all of the ages. It is a tradition for sure. It is not authoritative, but it is not to be disregarded and discarded lightly. You better be careful when you mess with traditions. We need to be careful. We were talking in the car on the way over, and one of the comments made was, change for change's sake, change for change's sake is a bad thing. It's a bad thing. We need to know what we are doing and why we are doing it. Protestant Christianity has maintained the principle and the source, but has moved away from the tradition for the sake of nature's sign. The Protestant church has moved away from head coverings, by and large, right? And has preferred to say, we have nature's sign. Women have a covering in their long hair. We don't need to have the covering externally. And I believe that with every tradition, there is an opportunity for losing the why behind the tradition or an abuse of it, right? We can abuse traditions. We have to admit that. And I believe that Protestant Christianity has sought to correct an imbalance of seeing women as inferior and less than man by emphasizing more of the equality of men and women and relying on the natural sign of hair as the covering. That is where the evangelical church has landed. Christians 
have promoted the internal attitude and external commitment to living out the principle. But we have devalued the outward sign of the head covering, and we have judged that it is proper for women to participate in the church, to pray, to prophesy, without a veil on her head, and obviously with a few exceptions, right? There are some denominations. However, the influence of feminism and pendulum, excuse me, the influence of feminism, the pendulum, has largely swung the other direction, wherein we have lost the outward sign and so much of modern Christianity has forgotten the principle and has even lost clarity about nature's example, right? Not only has so much of Christianity thrown off the symbol, but they've also struggled with valuing nature. We're so afraid of legalism that we become legalistic. As we close, I want to give you four considerations for us to think about and to apply. Number one, we need to be bulldogmatic about the principle and design of God for men and women. I have more after that, but that's a good place to put a period. We must value in heart and practice the roles for which we were designed. Men are created in the image of God as head of woman. Women are created by God as the glory of man under his authority. And that understanding should be lived out in our relationships under the discipleship of God's word, which gives us instructions for how we live that out. But we must be bulldogmatic about the principle and design of God for men and women. Number two. We need to clearly maintain our gender differences in public. We need to clearly maintain our gender differences in public. Paul was not calling us to assimilate with a godless culture in order to not offend them. By the Spirit, he called us not to, to not rebel against that which corresponds to God's design and maintains a respectful and honorable practice in society. We don't go, listen, we don't go down to the culture. We don't go down to the culture. We maintain the best of culture that corresponds to God's design and we do not project a rebellion against him. We dare not compromise on how God has made us. And we don't have to change a whole lot to actually stand out like a sore thumb, right? As the world around us and as our culture seeks to even value homosexual, homosexuality in the style of that heterosexual men wear, when we, when we look at the world around us and the, the desire for androgyny, the desire to blur the lines of the sexes and to make it fluid, right? You can, just, you can just go right across the gender differences. Change it. One day to the next. Or change it permanently. 
We dare not compromise on how God has made us. And in fact, we glory in it. We glory in the way God made us, how he made us different, and in the design in which he has made us. Number three, women need to maintain clear, honorable, modest, and beautiful femininity. In your hair, seek a length and a style that adorns you as a woman, that is pleasing to your husband or father, and that honors your creator. Right? In your hair, ladies, seek a length and a style that adorns you as a woman, that is pleasing to your husband or father, and that honors your creator. This does not require a head covering or even a change in our culture unless your head asks it of you. Even consider your heart and willingness if the elders of the church sought to promote a church culture that called for women to wear a head covering. I believe it is the right of a local church to create its own culture. Even to build a church culture that is shared by denominations, right? That is the right of elders to decide that and to promote that and to teach that and to, and to foster those types of things. For we do it all the time. This could be one of those things that churches decide would be best. The why is extremely important. The principle is extremely important. But it is within the realm of authority to do so. So be mindful of your willingness to honor the angels and represent our God well with how we present our bodies in the world. Men also need to maintain clear, honorable, and handsome masculinity. Cut your hair like a guy. Look sharp and respectful. Seek to be pleasing to your wife and parents. Or parents. Be the kind of man who represents your headship well and who shows it appropriately on the outside. This seems controversial. It's, it shouldn't be. And in fact, it's more obvious and basic than most people will admit to. And the world even understands it as well. And I can tell you that from first-hand experience from interviewing people. You're going to know something about someone the instant they walk through that door before a question is asked or a question is answered. There are some things that you're going to be able to pick out. You're not 100% right all the time. But there are, there are things that you are projecting. And the goal is, what are you projecting and does it match the heart and the principle behind it? Because the tradition is to serve the principle. The tradition is to prop up and to show off the heart. Because the tradition is not authoritative. It's a servant. It's a tool. And Paul has made it extremely clear. Like food and drink, do it to the glory of God. Oh, and what you wear, do that to the glory of God. Whatever you do, right? The life verse of all of us, do all to the glory of God. And there are, and there are ways... 
that, are, that do so, and there are ways that don't. And don't kid yourself that traditions don't matter. Finally, number four. Let us examine our traditions carefully. Let us examine our traditions carefully. Let us love what we do and trim them so that we do. Let us love what we do and trim them so that we do. What do I mean? Let's ask good questions and know why we are doing what we are doing. Beware of falling into the trap and help me to beware of falling into the trap of thinking that traditions don't matter and that they exist to be broken. Help me and yourselves to look at the traditions and to make sure that we know why we're doing them and that we're not including in them things that detract from the principle and the heart of the matter. You are always involved in traditions every day of your life. Do you pray before you meal? Tradition. The question is, what traditions will we follow? What traditions will we adjust? And what traditions will we make? Christianity has gotten out of the business of being culture makers. Instead, we've been culture followers. Partly because we've kind of given up on a lot of principles. We've been influenced by some bad actors. We're all learning. We're all growing. In our understanding of all of these things, right? Therefore, that requires that we are patient with one another. Patient with one another. These things have to be learned. Practiced. Messed up. We have to be careful that the tradition is not that which is most important above the principle. So we need to help one another. And let us have the types of traditions that glorify God and are not an offense, whether eating, drinking, or whatever we do, right? And so may God be pleased with us as we seek to honor Him with our daily activities and all that we do and all the traditions family traditions, church traditions, all that we do, let us examine them carefully and bring them under the Lordship of Christ with the hope of bringing honor and glory to Him. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank You for uh, Your Word and we thank You for uh, our Father in the faith, the Apostle Paul. To some, He might seem like a grouchy old man who has no business talking about what other women wear on top of their heads. Or they dismiss him and be like, well, that was fine for Paul's day. That's just, that's just the culture. And so we just throw the whole baby out with all of the bathwater. 
And just we don't give it serious thought. And I thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to go systematically, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, line by line, through your word and through this book, and to see Paul's teaching, his attitude, his heart. That we don't just talk about it in flippant and dismissive ways, but that we slow down and we think about and we look at the principles, we look at the argument, and we look at how he's laid it all out for us, and all the things that have been pointed out. And in that we see the wisdom that is there. We see the, the care and the concern for honoring Christ and for being a good testimony to the holy angels. We thank you for the design of God. We thank you for the way in which you have created man in your image and woman like him in man's, as man's glory. We thank you for the distinction of roles and the equality in our humanity. We thank you for our wives and our daughters. We thank you for how you've made them and we ask that they would indeed love how they are made, embrace it, love it, preach it, foster it, make it better. Resist the curse. Lord, I pray for the men here. I pray that you would help them to embrace the driver's seat. Lord, help us all to be the type of, types of heads that look like Christ. which is daunting. We thank you that Christ was indeed the head. For he fulfilled it all and has led us through perfection to glory. Lord, I pray for the young men to, to grow up I pray for them to learn what it means to be a godly man, a godly head, one who understands what headship means because he studies hard the person of Christ, who executes his manliness in a way that is loving and servant-oriented towards his family, prepare them for marriage, Prepare them for a life of leadership, of perhaps standing alone, a life of suffering. I pray that among these men that there would not be characteristics of femininity, but a love and an embrace of what it means to be a man. And I pray that they would have fathers who would model it. I pray that their boys would want to be like their dad in things accepting sin. <clears throat> pray, Lord, that you would be with our daughters, that you would prepare them for marriage, that you would cause them to love their moms and the example that they give. We pray that they would 
learn what it means to be a support, respectful, one who builds up, one who loves with respectful submission to the headship of her husband. I pray, Lord, that they would not take upon themselves the characteristics of manliness. Help us to resist with a stiff arm the desires of the culture. For indeed, the culture wants us as adults to bow to it, and they want our children to convert to it. Lord, help us to resist. We need your help, we need your spirit, we need your word to guide us in our traditions, to help us look at them properly, carefully, trim them to cut out that which does not correspond to Scripture, does not correspond to your design. We ask that our traditions would adorn the Gospel and our great Creator. Lord, we thank you for your word as it is instructive to us. We ask that you would cause us to grow and to mature as we go into these days. We pray that we would look to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and his glorious resurrection as that to which we look for our only hope and stay. We pray that this would be a week of looking forward to tradition, of celebrating that which is most dear to us. We pray that you would receive all the honor and the glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. <clears throat> Amen.